a look at the NRA's declining finances, plus a conversation with former active shooter response trainer Mike Williver about the failures in Uvalde. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and check out our membership options today if you want to get exclusive access to dozens, I think perhaps hundreds of pieces that are otherwise unavailable to people who are not members. We have a lot of analysis pieces, uh, analysis pieces behind that that membership. So uh, go ahead over and check it out today. You will, of course, also get this podcast a day early and the opportunity to appear on the podcast or to submit questions for Q&A episodes of the podcast, which we just did one last week, if you want to check that out. But this week, we have Mike Williver, who is the host of Active Self-Protection Podcast, which uh, you can find me on. And we do a news, news segment there, but he's also a retired um, Homeland Security special agent who uh, taught active shooter training to law enforcement during his time uh, with the agency. So, uh, Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, buddy. Good to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we we wanted to explore, you know, your expertise on active shooter training, and it's obviously relevant in the wake of the Valde school shooting where police um, waited for a long period of time before um, interceding with that shooter as he was in that classroom, as everybody I think is well aware of at this point. So I just wanted to kind of go over some of the basics to start with of active shooter training, because, you know, I've taken active shooter courses twice, including uh, a course from Faster Colorado that specifically deals with schools. Uh, I also did um, the Israeli tactical school active shooter training for civilians. So uh, you've done law enforcement training as the person teaching it. So can you give us just a little bit of uh, background on how these trainings generally work? What are the priorities? Uh, you know, it's funny because we, we talked about this on, on my show as well. There, there isn't, there really isn't that much to it, is there? there it's not terribly complicated training. It's not, it's, it's pretty common sense. You know, we, we, we hopefully learn from the awful tragedy at Columbine at the, the high school in Colorado, uh, what to do and what not to do. And in, in our training course, um, when, when I was instructed to be an instructor, I went through the course as a student, you know, and, and it, it's very basic. You, you respond to an active shooter, whether in my case, whether you're on duty or off and you go to the sound of the gunfire, you go to where the gunfire is going on and you do everything you can to end that gunfire. Usually that means, shooting and probably killing the person doing the shooting. Um, you know, I think the important part of the active shooter training is getting an officer or an agent into the most realistic sort of force on force environment you can get them into. I'm sure that you have the same thing in your training where there's someone with a SIM gun or something similar, someone who can shoot back at you. And there is a lot of chaos and there is a lot of uh, loud noises going on and you have to sort through that. You have to um, balance your cognitive load long enough to get to where the shooter is, find that person, and put them down. A big part of that is uh, ignoring anything on the way to where that is. You're going to see, you know, if you respond to something like this, you're very likely going to see people injured, badly injured, maybe almost dying. And we're taught and we teach our agents to bypass all of that stuff bypass anything else, any distractions, any IEDs, anything else you might, you know, run into on the way to where the person's killing people and get to them and kill them. Now, yeah. I, I think, I, go ahead. And I, I just think I, like, it's important to emphasize that, right? The, the main takeaway in both the active shooter courses that I've uh, experienced myself and in every training I've ever read about or heard of, including the ones that they were doing in Uvalde just this march uh, is that the priority is to go to the gunfire to immediately confront the shooter and get him to stop by whatever means necessary before he can kill more people. Right. Right. I mean, that, am I am I being too simplistic in my summation there? No, I don't think so. Um, and I, I wonder how we're going to fill forty five minutes. To be quite honest with you, because <laughs> that really that really is kind of all there is to it. I think 
um, you know, I, I responded to an active shooter um, before I'd ever had any active shooter training. I was on a task force in California, in San Diego County, and I was out in an unmarked car. Basically, my job that night was to spot gangsters who were doing gang operations, gang suppression, and in the unmarked car, and then call in marked units to go, if the person had a warrant or whatever the case may be, to go do their thing. And I was right down the street from a gym. It was a gym for underprivileged kids. People volunteered there to teach them boxing and get them in shape and that kind of thing and keep them off the street. Earlier that day, one of those volunteers had been let go. I still don't know why. Uh, had been let go, asked to leave the premises. He went home, got a pistol, came back and started shooting the place up. He was such a coward, in fact, that he opened the barn door of this place and stuck his arm through that opening, not even looking, and just started spraying the place with bullets. I was so close that, as it turns out, when I got there and I'm running into this, people are running out, and it turns out the shooter ran right past me. Now, he, he had gotten rid of the pistol, so there was no way to know who was who. But the point is, um, the, the, the most important thing is to get in there. Let me talk about something else. Bravery isn't the absence of fear, right? Bravery is, is feeling that fear, unless you're a complete psychopath, <laughs> feeling that fear and overcoming it and gutting up and getting in there and doing what you have to do. Uh, there's no shame in being afraid. There's no shame in, in feeling like, you know what, there's someone shooting in there. I don't want to go in that place. I, I don't, I don't want to die. Uh, however, you signed up for law enforcement. You signed up to protect people. Uh, usually the police are reactive. So this is one of the few times when we can be proactive and get in there uh, while, the, while the thing is happening and do something about it. If you sign up to be a law enforcement officer, it's incumbent upon you to have a conversation with yourself long before the moment of truth ever happens. Uh, I say this to my citizen self-defenders, same thing. If you're going to carry a firearm, you need to have really thought through whether or not you're willing to use a firearm to defend yourself. If it's going to be on you, you'll be ready to use it. Otherwise, it could be taken away from you and used against you. So in, in the case of law enforcement, you need to have decided in your head that I'm going to overcome that fear and I'm going to act. I'm going to get out of my car. I'm going to, even though your body's telling you to run away, I'm going to get a firearm, preferably a long gun, and I'm going to go in there and end this threat. You have to have also decided, you know, I might die in the process of this. That, that's, an, that's a real possibility. But if you haven't had that conversation with yourself ahead of time, you're doing yourself a disservice. You're doing your agency. And most importantly, the community you serve, you're doing them a disservice by not being mentally prepared, by not having said all the things you want to say to your loved ones, by, you know, by not having that spiritual and mental fitness ahead of time. And I think that's, that's probably the, my biggest takeaway from this thing is someone at that scene in while they needed to be needed to say, no, I'm not going to hold, you know, no, I'm not going to wait around. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, I mean, two officers did, I'm not sure. I don't know all the details about their injuries, but two officers I understand did go in and attempt yeah. uh, to put him down and, and, and were, were shot. Let's, and let's get into the details of Uvalde a little bit here. Sure. Um, now that we've gone over sort of the general idea of active shooter training and what you're supposed to do in these sorts of situations. But what we saw in, in Uvalde, I mean, there's, there's a number of things to talk about that and we can get to some of these later on, like the, maybe if we have time, the, the police response time, I guess he was reported to have crashed into that ditch and then was shooting at people outside the school for like 12 minutes before he even went inside. But, um, once he was inside, apparently two officers, local PD officers, did go in and try to confront him and were subsequently shot um, and had minor injuries, as far as we're aware. Um, but they they disengaged uh, at that point and then, then backup started to arrive from basically every law enforcement agency within, you know, however many miles of the situation, which is common for these things, right? That's, that's what you're supposed to do. Everybody's okay. supposed to go as, fa as fast as they possibly can and get there and intervene. But for some reason, a decision was made not to intervene. Um, and instead they cordoned off the area, created a perimeter to keep uh, parents away uh, while they tried to evacuate students who weren't inside the classroom that the shooter was in. Uh, and then they waited, I mean, over an hour uh, before they finally went inside that classroom. Um, and so, I mean, to, uh, it certainly seems to contradict literally everything that you're taught uh, to do in an active shooter situation, right? 
Is that is that how you feel? Yeah, it really is. It, it, it looked like Columbine Part Two, only worse. Um, with trying to evacuate people when the threat is active, is not really. I mean, if if on the way to the threat, you can tell the kids, "Hey, beat it, scram down that hallway, get out of here." That's great, but evacuations are are generally ineffective, especially if the person's. I think he, at that point he was confined to a room, and there were nine one one calls coming in from that room in the room next door is that right i think um that's correct kids were yes. calling in so they knew what room he was in kids and called I, repeatedly in fact yeah and i can't i can't imagine what kids. obstacle it was that prevented them from just going into that room um the I door was locked all, that's all we've heard so far right. i don't i don't know i mean does that you know i i suppose maybe this was a, some of these schools in texas have had this kind of hardening previously maybe this was a very specialized door to keep people out of I don't know what I mean. How difficult is it for law enforcement to breach even a high security door? Uh, in your experience, it, it depends. I mean, g generally speaking, patrol officers are not going to have um, uh, breaching weapons, you know, rams or stuff like that. Um, frequently, mm -hmm. a supervisor will have that sergeant or someone will have that in their trunk, and that can be available in the event that you need to breach a door or see have an impromptu search warrant or whatever. A more likely scenario is something like that. Uh, I, I I don't. I don't know. I would really want to know before I comment whether it was some sort of very high, um, high security door or something like that. Uh, sure. there, there had to be another way to get in there. And if that's the case, that the school hardened this room to the point where the police can't even get in, that's another training point, another uh, prep point that we need to discuss and figure out. Because if that's the case, then that needs to change as, as well. I hope they're looking at that. Yeah, I haven't heard any reports of them attempting to get through that door until a key was provided. So I don't it's not clear to me exactly how much of an obstacle that door was. Um, well, it depends on a number of things. First of all, does the door open in or out? You know, does it, is it, so if you're in the hallway, does the door pull out towards you or does it, or does it push in towards the classroom? If it pulls out, that does present some, some issues. If it pulls out, um, you know, possibly getting the hinges off was an option. I, I don't know. And again, I, I feel like I'm commenting on something. I can't really know. Sure. I can't really know what they were facing as, as a first the door, but man, Go through the ceiling, uh, go through a window, do do something, anything other than, you know, not getting in there as quickly as possible. I think that there's that even in even in a best case scenario in terms of like the door being very difficult to penetrate. It still seems from what we know now, at least, and maybe we'll learn more that there, there isn't much sense to the uh, idea that they couldn't have at least attempted to go through that door before getting the the key that that was needed. Uh, but I wanted to also talk a little bit about um, uh, this, this decision-making process, right? So the, the reason that's been given for why they didn't attempt to go in during this, this period after the first two police officers exchanged fire with, with the shooter is that he uh, is that he was considered to be barricaded inside of that room. I mean, what uh, I guess uh, maybe talk a little bit about uh, that decision making process uh, for police officers, like how uh, what, is it ever really appropriate to make that switch from active shooter to barricaded suspect or hostage holder uh, or and what would be the factors that would make uh, responding uh, you know, chief of police decide to to switch there? Well, I, I don't know. Um, again, there's a lot we don't know about the actual situation there on the ground at the time. But there, there, if, if there is shooting going on, and I think you and I discussed this on my show, there, 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 during these 911 calls, you could hear shooting, active shooting in the background. Correct. So if, if that's the case, there's there's no reason to, to hold or, or consider a barricaded subject. Barricaded subject... Um, as far as I'm concerned, is somebody with no victims handy around him, you know, no one to no one to bargain with. Uh, so a barricaded subject is a guy in a house who ran from the cops and now he's you know, he's holed up in, you know, in the in the linen closet with an AR or something like that. That's a barricaded subject. Somebody who has um, people that he's actively killing. He's just an active shooter. There's no such thing as, a, you know, in my mind, a barricaded subject. Now, if he I mean, maybe if he had started communicating with them somehow and you know, said, I'm, 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 I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. I mean, I guess maybe, but I just don't see in this case, that wasn't the case even remotely. So I don't understand why anyone would decide 
to stop and hold at that point because no, nothing has really effectively changed. I don't know if he ever stopped shooting at any point, but even if he stopped shooting, there's still kids in there. You're almost certainly bleeding to death. So the, right. the urgency doesn't really end just because he stopped shooting. If that makes any yeah, sense. That that's one of my main points when I, one of my main concerns when I think about this idea of him switching from an active shooter to a barricaded subject, the problem is that he was barricaded inside a classroom with a bunch of children right. who he'd already shot at the very least. I mean, there's, uh, there's no possible way that they could have known he, that the, uh, you, you still go in because those kids are bleeding uh, most likely. There's no way they could know that they were already dead or, or that they weren't being shot. And then, in fact, he shot another uh, uh, child as the police breached. Um, so, like, clearly there were still kids alive. So there was a report that um, one of the children did bleed out during this time period. Um, and so it's just, even in a chaotic situation like that, even in a situation that none of us would want to ever have to confront ourselves, it just seems inexplicable the decisions that were made and uh, i guess one thing and you kind of uh, touched on this earlier but one thing i you know i've tried to focus personally on the leadership decisions that were made um you know there's uh i believe his name is uh pete arandando who's the the supposedly the one who's making these decisions on the scene um but at the same time, you do start to wonder, like, why did every law enforcement official who showed up go along with these decisions that were made? Um, I don't know. Can you, can you give any insight into that? Yeah, I mean, maybe, actually, maybe some of them were showing up after they declared him a barricaded subject. And I don't know. What, what do you? Yeah, al almost certainly that was the case. Almost certainly there was people coming in from, you know, from from far afield that didn't get there until, you know, maybe 30 or I'm speculating 30 minutes, mm -hmm. 45 minutes after this whole thing had started. Um, because like you said earlier, it's kind of like when, when there's a officer down, you know, you send, the, they say you send the world, you know, you send every available unit, same thing for an active shooter, especially at a school. So there was probably people coming in from all over the area, um, you know, sheriff's deputies, in this case, um, customs and border protection, border patrol, uh, agents who were with the uh, U.S. marshals. Yeah. The, the border patrol agents that actually went in were from Bortac, which is a, the border patrol's version of a SWAT team. And they are very, very highly trained. Uh, I talk about that on uh, this week's Ask podcast. I talked to a federal agent who's on uh, a different SWAT team, but he sang their praises. They're very highly trained. Their mission is very specific. Those guys, um, they, they'll, they'll climb aboard a, a Black Hawk helicopter and be dropped on a ridge somewhere uh, where there's a lookout or a guy with a, a rifle doing overwatch for, for cartel loads. It's really high-speed stuff. So um, more to your point, why didn't anyone disobey that order? Yeah, that's an excellent question. You know, as a law enforcement officer, your duty is to the people you serve. Your duty is to the community that you serve. And if your chief, your sergeant, captain, lieutenant, whatever, is giving you an order that you consider to be immoral or unlawful, you're good to go to disobey that order. Um, if you're willing to go in and get shot to save these kids, you're not. You're certainly willing to get disciplined or even lose your job if that's the case uh, behind your decision to disregard an immoral unlawful order uh, it, again I, I don't i don't understand the decision makers um reasoning for what they did but you know a couple minutes after he says we're going to hold and try to evacuate people i'm going to grab a couple of guys and go and i think that's what the vast majority of, of officers would do i don't know anything about their training i know you've looked into their active shooter training you said they had active shooter training a couple months ago so who knows um i think you said you got a hold of the curriculum for that is that right yeah, the curriculum was the curriculum was published online. Uh, that is, and it's standard stuff. I mean, yeah. you know, even even going in alone, if you're the only one there, that's that's right. recommended. So because, it wasn't it wasn't like they got bad training. It wasn't like they got bad information. Yeah. So so yeah, there yeah. really is isn't much of, of an excuse. Um, yeah, you know, and, I, and there's I, reports as well that the that that um, border patrol SWAT team was told to wait half an hour before they were allowed to go in, and I just don't understand. Even in a situation where someone's giving you really bad orders, um, yeah, I think it's at least fair to question why they followed them. I don't, it seems yeah. to go against everything everyone's been trained to do. I, I would need to know a lot more about what went on yeah. on the ground, what the communication was, because just one yeah. minor point. 
uh, Border Patrol, FBI, you name it, U.S. Marshals, unless they're on a task force with a local agency. In most jurisdictions, they don't have comms with local mm-hmm. PD, with state police. They don't have, there's no shared radio system. Uh, again, unless you're on a task force, then you get, you know, you switch out. They get one of your radios, you get one of theirs, and you can talk to each other. Um, so I, I don't know how they were communicating, the BORTAC team and the the PD. But, you know, I, I can assume, I can make uh, I can make a presumption here that the BORTAC team was being told to wait and didn't know why. Maybe they there could have been some confusion as to why are we waiting? Do they have another plan? Are they sending someone in? Is there some some uh, exigent circumstance that we don't know about? So on their part, um, not you know not wanting to step all over this local agency or or run in there uh, half cock, not knowing what was actually going on inside, which is entirely possible. In fact, it's likely. Yeah, uh, ma- makes some sense to me. Uh, I'm right. reasonably certain that they they went in. They weren't never cleared to go in, as far as I know. The Bortac team, they just went. They just said, screw this and, and went inside. I think when they finally realized, hey, there's no plan here. There's there's no leadership. No one has a plan to get these kids out. Let's go, which was the appropriate response. You would like to see them do it sooner, but I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that they were probably thinking to themselves, well, there, there must be something we don't know about going on. That's why we're holding here, because everything right. in you is telling you to get in there and find this guy. Yeah, I mean, that's. I hope that's the case, because it's the only thing that could possibly make sense. Um, to me at the very least, uh, because, you know, uh, one thing I want to talk about is we've seen uh, cops respond according to training multiple times with sure. active shooter training, uh, active shooter situations. Uh, in fact, we just saw one this week, unfortunately, again, um, in Oklahoma, where there was a shooting at a hospital, uh, an active shooter went in and uh, killed four people, sadly, but but uh, within 30 seconds of the police confronting him, he killed himself, which is not an uncommon end to these sorts of attacks. And, and so it's important to not allow that shooter to free reign to go around. Um, and in fact, I've, I've interviewed uh, another officer uh, when I did my Faster Colorado training. One of the instructors in the firearms section is a Colorado police officer. Uh, his name's Quinn Cunningham, who... Uh, responded to a school shooting in, mm-hmm. in and the way he described it uh, to me is very much in line with everything I was taught and everything that I've heard uh, from everyone else. Uh, you know, here's, I'll just give people a quick quote uh, from the story. They can, people can read more uh, if they want to. This is published at the free beacon a couple of years back. Um, you, you can look it up, but uh, Cunningham says, uh, when something like that happens, pretty much the whole city comes. The whole metro area came. I was about 12th into the school. From what I understand, we went into the school and were moving through the hallways. It was me and two other cops who I'd never seen before. I don't remember what agency they're with, and I haven't seen them since. And we're moving through the school. And normally when we do scenario-based training for an active killer, there's a lot of discussion or distractions and a lot of fire alarms and role players and all this stuff, screaming going on. And it was dead silent, like deafening, distracting silence to the point where it was, what's going on? Where are these kids at? And I'm looking at my watch, like, what day is it? Um, but there's, and he says that was because they were so good at their, their protocols that they were all locked in their classrooms. Uh, sadly, in that case, uh, they, the shooter had already killed um, a girl and and then had left. He was searching for a, a teacher that he didn't like, um, and he set the library on fire. And there was, was a lot, but the, sort of gets to the point of how you're supposed to react to these situations, how you're trained to do it, which is you go in immediately, uh, you team up with whoever happens to be there at the same time you are, and you search for the shooter until you find them and neutralize them, right? Uh, then you start helping other people. Uh, or, or helping the wounded or, you know, that's the second line role. And, and it's important because these things can happen so quickly. A lot of the killing can happen very quickly. Um, and so you got to respond quickly. Yeah. I, I remember talking to Stephen Williford from, um, from Texas. He's the one who intervened in that church shooting and something that something he said really stuck in my head. He said, every, every time I heard another round go off, that was another one of my friends or neighbors being killed. And that's how, as a law enforcement officer, you need to view, these situations when you get there, that's someone's kid. It's someone's mom or dad. Uh, it's some, somebody's loved one. When you talked about 
the chaos that he said he uh, encountered. That's 100% true. Uh, we always tried to make the training as realistic as possible. So there was role players screaming and yelling. There was people, uh, you know, with, with blood all over them. The idea being we want to see if we can distract them to stop, you know, and, and render aid to someone or stop and move a, something out of the way or whatever that doesn't need to happen. Um, you know, if, if the if training is, is uniform as it should be, I, I've never seen, a, you know, ever since we started doing accuracy training, I've never seen much of a um, variance in, in the training. It's all pretty much the same thing. And the reason that's important is, like he said, your officer from Colorado, he gets there, there's two cops, doesn't know who they are, or what agency they're from. The good news is they've all had pretty much the same training. So they can form up a quick, quick team and know what to do and how to do it. Um, there's, there's clearing tactics have changed. So for example, on a search warrant, clearing tact, clearing a building, those tactics have changed 37 times since, you know, since I started in law enforcement back in 1903. And so, so it's important that if you're working with another agency, if you're on a task force, for example, it's important that you train together so that you know, you know, how, how you clear, there's a bunch of different ways to clear a building. The old way where it's dynamic, where you, kick the door and everybody runs around yelling and screaming. That's not really the way they do it anymore. It's more methodical. Same thing with active shooter training. It's important that everyone get roughly the same training. And I think they are. And I I, I love that he had the experience that he just, the guys just flowed together. Same thing if you're off, if you're an off-duty officer, same thing if you're a citizen defender, you're a concealed weapons holder. Um, you know, there, there's, it's not very complicated. Uh, as we've said 37 times already in this, in the right. show, you just go to where the shooting is and you put the person down. It's something you said uh, was really important, Stephen. You can't render aid while the shooting is going on. Um, that that includes fire rescue, EMS, paramedics. Um, they're not going to, they can't come in. They are, they are forbidden from coming in. You know, they're unarmed medics. They're not trained to uh, deal in this sort of environment. So it's your job as LE or even as a private defender. It's your job as someone who's trained to use a firearm to make that scene safe enough that those guys can then come in and do what it is they have to do. And every second that you hesitate, every minute that you you hem and haw, or your chief or whoever it is hems and haws, and doesn't let you do that important part of the work, the longer it is till they get in. Because as soon as the person's down, they still don't rush right in. You still got to clear the rest of the building, got to make sure there's no other shooters, there's no IEDs, whatever. So right. getting to him, that's just that's really just step one. That's just step one. There's a lot more steps to it after that. But um, yeah, and that seems to be where they really drop the ball. It's just on the very first step. I mean, those first two cops, like kudos to them, right? They did the right thing in confronting him, but then everything after that point was a total failure and, and disastrously so, right? We're talking about 19 elementary school kids and two teachers being murdered in this case. And it seems like at least some of those lives were lost unnecessarily, which is devastating, I think, to the community, to, to the country at large, you know? Uh, and to, you know, I think it's gonna, it has an impact on uh, the general public's trust of law enforcement, too, unfortunately, uh, even though, as we've mentioned here several times, most police officers, I believe, will try to intervene and try to save lives and they will do what they've been trained to do in active shooter situations. And it's happened repeatedly. But uh, unfortunately, now you have a very high profile instance where that didn't happen, where they 20 armed officers stood outside a, a classroom where children were dying. Uh, unnecessarily. Yeah, it's, it's unacceptable. It's, terrible. Uh, it's unacceptable. And, you know, we talked, uh, you and I talked on on my show about there being watershed incidents, you know, in, in law enforcement, in, in any profession. But in law enforcement, there's things like the FBI in Miami shootout, or when mm -hmm. they were shooting revolvers. And part of the reason some of those agents died is because they were trained to uh, dump their, they were just carrying 30, 38 revolvers, they would dump their brass, their spent brass into their non-dominant or their dominant hand, put it in their pocket, then reload. They found brass in their pockets for these dead agents. Uh, the Newhall incident in California with the CHP, where one responding officer after another ends up getting shot and killed. Columbine. Uh, Uvalde will go down in history as a watershed event. And my hope is that this, the, the shame being heaped upon, especially the leadership down there, uh, will get the attention of any agency who is unprepared or any uh, any administrator who is cowardly or worried about liability or whatever it was that prevented them from doing it. Hopefully, uh, those those few people uh, in, in leadership positions or those few officers who haven't had that conversation that I referenced earlier 
will have that conversation. Those leaders will make a decision and steal their resolve and stiffen their spine to the point where this never, ever happens again. You know, there, there's John and I cover a lot of videos on the channel. And I think people were surprised to hear me, a career law enforcement officer who's retired, be critical, very critical of officers, officers and deputies in some of these videos. The vast majority of the videos we cover that are law enforcement, the outcome is is just. It isn't always it isn't always good. You know, sometimes uh, somebody gets shot or killed, or someone commits suicide by a cop. But the vast majority of them, the outcome is justified. Um, right. And on the, on the on the few occasions when it's not, I will absolutely call that officer or those officers out. There was a case in Georgia that was a mess. Uh, there was there was one case where a, a guy was trying to commit suicide by a cop, and the officer. Everything he did leading up to shooting the guy was was wrong, tactically wrong. And then him shooting the guy really, I don't think, was really justified. And then after he shot the guy, he stood there frozen, uh, not lending aid, not calling free MS, and a female officer had to come in and handle all that business for him. I say all that to say this. If you're out there watching this and you're watching this coverage and you are in law enforcement, whether it's leadership or a line officer or, or a tactician or whatever the case may be, you need to make that decision now. Don't. You're not going to rise to the occasion. You're not going to rise to the moment of truth. You're going to rise to the level of your commitment to protect your community and your training. And that's all there is to it. There's, there's, no, there's no other ingredient there that we need to talk about. Um, and hopefully this will be that watershed that will prevent this from ever happening again. Because, you know, I, I have a lot of pride in my law enforcement career. I'm very proud of what I did. I'm generally very proud of law enforcement in general. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm a little less proud today. I'm a little, that's a little diminished. And I hate to say that um, because... You know, we talk about Ellie in the United States. What do you see on TV in Ellie encounters? The ones that go poorly, the ones where the cop does something wrong. And meanwhile, there's 4 million encounters every day that go swimmingly and they never make the news. Um, this is not that. This is this is a huge black eye for law enforcement. And I really hope that uh, this doesn't ever happen again because everyone, all eyes are on this right now. There's nobody in any law enforcement capacity in the U.S., who hasn't heard about this and isn't thinking these thoughts in his or her head. Like I, that needs to not be me. Uh, if this happens again and I'm nearby and I can help, I need to get in there and, and do what I got to do and get to work and, and end the threat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just sad because it, you know, like a lot of those other scenarios you mentioned, that was the first time, right. Where those mistakes have been made. And now this one just feels like a repeat, right? right. Like we should have, we learned these lessons 20 years ago. In, in uh, over 20 years ago, 1999, during Columbine, right? Uh, we, we learned it to some degree again in Parkland. That you know, now that's one officer choosing not to intervene. Uh, perhaps he just lost his nerve. This was Columbine and Uvalde were systemic problems. Uh, the whole system didn't work, uh, and it's just sad because I, I I think you're right. I mean, I think. It'll have a, certainly an effect on law enforcement and potential responses to active shooter situations in the future. But I mean, like, I, you know, it's hard because most of the time, as we've been talking about here, most police officers and most police departments respond correctly to these situations. They might not be able to uh, do anything, unfortunately, to affect the outcome in all cases because of how quickly these shootings can go down, frankly, right. before police can respond to them. I mean, that's true, right, uh, of most violent attacks. Police are generally, as you mentioned earlier in the show, uh, responsive. They're, they're, they're coming in after the fact. Um, they're not proactive because that's the nature of policing. Like, you're not going to always have police on the scene when somebody attacks you. That's something that you guys cover quite uh, quite well over at the Active Self Protection channel, and also on the podcast, uh, discussing you know different people's experiences with self defense situations. But um, you know it's a key principle that's been reinforced, unfortunately, again. But it's one of those things where we didn't need the lesson again, right? We, we shouldn't, um, and and that's what makes it all the all the worse, right? Right. So I mean, at some point. Um, we need to have a discussion as a country about how we're going to make these schools safer, how we're going to harden them, how we're going to protect them. Um, you know, it's, uh, I don't remember who, who said the quote, but, you know, parents are perfectly fine. Teachers are perfectly fine with having sprinkler systems, fire extinguishers, and fire alarms, and doing fire drills um, in case there's a fire. I don't remember the last time I heard about a major fire at a school. You know, I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. We absolutely should do those things. But we, we as a country, need to have a conversation there's there seems like there's people who say arm every single teacher and the custodian and the bus driver and you know make it into basically a prison 
lock all the doors, put up barbed wire. That's never going to work. and It's never going to happen. On the other side, the only thing I really heard from, from sort of the anti-gun side is let's ban all the guns. I got news for you, folks. That's never, ever, ever going to happen. They could, I mean, they could possibly try to ban all future sales of all kinds of guns, and that's all well and good. There's more guns than people in this country. So taking the guns out of the equation just isn't, it's never going to work. It's never going to be the answer. Um, you know, I, I did a Facebook post a while back, and I, to, to my, well, I have a lot of uh, friends who are left of center, and I love them to tears. You know, we believe it asks, we believe that self, self-defense is for everybody, not just for Republicans or Democrats or Libertarians. Self-defense is for everybody, and that includes schools. What I said in that post was, we got more guns than people. Uh, so if you want to ban all guns and cops get all guns, play that out in your head. It's like an Alcoholics Anonymous trope, you know. Let's play that out in your head. If you decide to ban all future sales and start confiscating guns, how's that going to work out? It's going to be terrible. You're going to have massive shootouts constantly. It's not a feasible solution. Therefore, since we're going to always have guns, um, banning guns is not possibly going to work. We need to come up with practical, common sense solutions. You know, I'm a retired federal agent. Uh, I'm a retired firearms instructor. Uh, you know, I've been shot at before. I've been very close to shooting. Um, it's very, if you've never been off a range and heard gunshots, especially rifle or shotgun shots in the wild, get your attention very quickly. And you'll know very quickly if you have the, the uh, intestinal fortitude to move forward and do what you have to do because it's pretty overwhelming. So I, I would like to see something like people like me uh, or off-duty cops or even citizen defenders who go through some sort of training class or whatever. Uh, I would volunteer in a heartbeat. I would volunteer to go uh, five days a week if necessary or, or, or take turns just being out of school, being in elementary school or a high school. Um, and nobody needs to know who I am. The students don't need to know who I am, only, only the staff. And if not that, if we're going to arm somebody in the school, uh, I know there's a lot of opposition to that. But it, for, for me, I feel like having an armed staff member doesn't have to be a teacher. It could be anybody. It could be the custodian. It could be a vice principal. And the only person who knows that person is armed is that person. You know, they, they don't, you know, the gun's never seen. No one knows about it. It's very quiet. They get the training they need. And it at least gives the people in that school a fighting chance because, you know, you mentioned earlier, it's, it's a, it's a cliche, but it's true. When, when seconds count, the police are minutes away. If you're in yeah. a personal self-defense encounter, it's going to be over before the police get there. You, you're your own rescue party. There's no one coming to save you really. Um, not so much in an active shooter, but if there's someone there that can at least put up a fight, what did you say earlier? This the other guy, uh, as soon as the police came in, he shot himself. Like you said, it's a frequent response of these cowards is they get they're not planning on any resistance they're planning on murdering little kids and no one's going to fight back and i'm just going to create this bloodbath and they've been over this fantasy over and over in their head the second the police show up frequently the person kills himself uh when that shooting gallery becomes a two-way range for the suspect that can change his demeanor it can change his decision making process it may mean he's not going to shoot any more kids because now he's concentrated on you instead and that's okay Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, these are the arguments you hear often from people who who do want to arm teachers, or at least some teachers. This is what uh, the Faster Colorado program does, and uh, the training that I took a couple of years back. I wrote about that whole experience as well over at the Free Beacon. People want to check out some of the historical reporting that that I've done on on this topic, and sort of the the viewpoints of the teachers and the police officers who train them, and and the program leaders, and and, uh, you know, obviously it's a very controversial uh, proposal, but um, so is basically every proposal that's been put out there to try and solve this problem. Uh, you know, obviously, and none of them are foolproof, of course. No, of course not. Um, but, but yeah, um, there's, you know, I think a legitimate conversation to be had. Certainly, uh, you know, I don't think anyone mandates forcing teachers to carry guns. No. Um, I don't think anyone supports that, but. But there is, a, you know, an interesting discussion to be had about uh, the teachers who want to be armed or staff members who want to be armed and how you do that properly. Some states do it. You know, it's not it's not something that's never been done. So uh, that's something we'll have to leave for for another episode, though. Perhaps we could talk about it more on uh, on the active self-protection podcast. Yes, I would which, like that. Uh, which I'm a guest on every week uh, we do a news roundup. It's one of my favorite podcasts, uh, you know, out there, I think, because it's just so interesting the way that you guys 
um, are able to, you know, you deconstruct these shooting situations, these self-defense encounters on the YouTube channel. And then sometimes you're able to get the people who are involved in them come on the podcast and talk about it in depth, which I think is fascinating. Can you tell people a little bit more about it? Yeah, um, we, we take self-defense encounters, the vast majority of our episodes anyway. We take self-defense encounters uh, from people who reach out to us. We find them, reach out to them, have them come on the show. We talk about their growing up, their experience with guns uh, before the incident, any training they may have done, you know, whether it's firearms or self-defense, the incident itself. And then we spend usually spend most of our time discussing the aftermath because that's that's the part no one really thinks about when they go out and get their CCW or they become a cop or whatever the case may be. They don't think about what happens after when the dust settles. What are the legal ramifications after I shoot someone as a citizen defender? Uh, what do I say to the cops? Do I say anything to the cops? Uh, what about PTS? Um, what, is, what might that look like? How can that be something that doesn't come on right away? That's frequently the case is someone is in one of these incidents. Everything seems fine for a month or two or three. And then all of a sudden they're experiencing hypervigilance or just paranoia or depression or sleeplessness or whatever the case is. Um, I, I'm really proud of the show. It's doing remarkably well for, for a new show. Um, mm -hmm. And I think uh, we're, we're getting a ton of, of great feedback from people. Uh, a lot of a lot of the Jutowski name left in the <laughs> review section on Apple Podcasts because they yes. people and the, the, what's really phenomenal is people stick around. Um, you know, I get the metrics back on how long the average listen is on our show, and uh, like seventy five percent of the audience listens all the way to the end, which I think is great. Um, some yeah. people at home might not know is when you put out a YouTube video or a podcast, you get metrics back. You can see, hey, did someone skip through the ad, or you know, did someone. Uh, just bounce around through it or they stop watching after 30 seconds. And so to have that kind of retention, um, I think people, um, people come for the story and they stay for Gutowski. That's just my theory. <laughs> yes. I'm the big draw at the end. That's, that's right. Uh, we do the, the news update at the end so people can get, uh, you know, just a little bit of what's going on in the gun world. But uh, can you just give us one example of a recent episode of, you know, interesting story? Oh, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh Probably one of the ones that, that touched me and moved me the most uh, was a gal from outside of Austin, Texas, and she lived kind of in a rural area, and she and her friend were just asleep. It was like a studio apartment, but a house, like a single family home with just one big room with, you know, with a kitchen and a dining room and a bedroom. And somebody she didn't know burst through the door. It was bright and early. She'd had a previous encounter, a violent encounter in her life that had made her hypervigilant and made her train so that she wouldn't be a victim again. And so this happens. And she literally wakes up to someone crashing through her door and she was prepared, knew what to do, where to go, where her cover was, knew where her gun was, knew the condition of her gun and was able to fire at this person, hit them and get them back out of her house. Uh, wow. And then it, yeah, towards the end of the show, she is uh, recalling, listening to the Act of Self-Protection podcast. This still blows my mind. Listening to our podcast, hearing another one of our guests, John Dobb. Uh, discuss a very similar incident in his home. And she heard him saying things that she had been feeling and hadn't talked to anyone about and thought maybe she was crazy, thought maybe she was the exception to the rule. And when she heard someone else experience exactly the same thing, uh, she and she was, was driven to tears on the show. It moved me deeply. She said, you know, I, I finally realized I wasn't crazy. I wasn't, there wasn't anything wrong with me. This was a normal reaction to a human being having, having uh, a, dramatic encounter and having taken a human life uh we i like to stress on the show it's not like the movies you're not going to uh unless you are a psychopath you're not going to finish shooting another human being no matter how deserved it was and then you know blow the smoke off your still warm barrel and then go have a martini uh with your with your significant other uh it's right. going to affect you deeply and I, I hopefully people are are getting that from from the show and realizing there's a lot more to it than just going to the range and learning learning how to shoot most important Absolutely. thing is when when to shoot more than and how to shoot people should go and check that episode out it's it's a really good one uh and you can find the podcast on every every podcasting app out there right mm -hmm. and and also on the active self-protection extra channel is that correct yeah I, on YouTube? And I hope more people avail themselves of that channel the active self-protection extra channel is john's favorite thing in the world besides besides mrs korea uh there's tons of free training there's tons of tips on there so if you're a self-defender if you're interested in self-defense, check out the extra channel and the podcast is on. So. All right. Well, we're going to head over to our our own news update now uh, here on the Weekly Reload podcast. But uh, 
we we would love to have you on again in the future. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Tell Jake I said hi. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the weekly news update. Um, I'm con- contributing writer Jake Fogelman here, as always, with Reload founder Steve Gutowski. How are you, Steve? I'm doing all right, Jake. How are you doing? Doing all right. Um, you just got back from the annual NRA meeting this week. Um, broke a couple of good stories coming out of the out of that meeting. If you want to explain some of the financial information we obtained, kind of update some of our previous reporting. Yeah. So, you know, I was in Houston for the annual meeting and they hand out uh, their their annual reports uh, at, at the annual meeting. They're not maybe the most creative uh, names for these things, but, you know, <laughs> they're descriptive. Uh, and in here, in this annual report, there gives you uh, the consolidated finances for the NRA. Now, the, one thing to understand here is that the NRA is actually a conglomeration of like eight different groups, I believe. Um, and so most of the time when you're talking about like the membership, that's the NRA, the National Rifle Association of America. And it's a 501c4 and that's what the membership organization is. Uh, but then they also have things like the Institute for Legislative Action, which is their lobbying arm. They have um, the Political Victory Fund, which is uh, their PAC. They also have the Victory Fund, which is their super PAC. Uh, and then they also have a number of uh, 501c3 nonprofits, which are more like your traditional charities that aren't right. uh, allowed to get involved in in politics uh, nearly as much. And that's you know, they have the, the NRA Foundation, the, they've got the Freedom Action Foundation, the Civil Rights Defense Fund, the Special Contribution Fund. And these things do different, uh, they, they play different roles. They do things like the safety and training is in the foundation, um, uh, you know, or uh, fundraising for it at least. And, and so, you know, when we're talking about the finances, we're talking about all of these groups combined in this particular report. We had uh, an internal report on just the membership organization's finances that we published uh, earlier this year uh, through, that was for the first eight months of 2021. And so we got some of the information from that as well. But we also have, of course, a bunch of the previous uh, annual reports from uh, the NRA to compare these against. So they're, they're apples to apples in a, in a lot of situations here. But the bottom line is the group has lost a tremendous amount of revenue over the last year. Uh, $47 million difference between 2020 and 2021. And it's even worse if you look back a little bit further to kind of the, the heyday of the organization, or th- which was only about three years ago, uh, where they had brought in $130 million more revenue that year than in 2021. Um, so they're not doing very well financially, to right. say the least. Yeah, it's sort um, of a, a continuation of the trend that we've seen at the last few reports mm-hmm. we've done when we've obtained these. It's kind of a similar story. Oh, revenue's down a little bit. And we thought, you know, that we did the 2020 or, financials, for example. Or a lot of it, right? Or a lot of it. Yeah, a lot of it's probably more accurate. <laughs> But we thought, you know, 2020, it's COVID. A mm-hmm. lot of organizations struggled financially. So maybe that doesn't sure. tell us too much. But then we got the leaked internal document that you obtained that we reported on that showed eight months of 2021. And it was the same story. And now you've got the consolidated financial report for all of 2021. And it really just lays it out there that, yeah, no, revenue is, is really dwindling. Um, so that's definitely an identification yeah. of a real trend. I mean, it's obviously... Uh, it's. Uh, it's obviously a little ironic or, or weird to call a 280 million, $282 million organization, uh, you know, shrinking or in collapse, but that's right. really what's going on. That used to be a $400 million organization. Yeah. Uh, now, I will say that the NRA has managed to forestall any sort of immediate financial disaster here, but they've done that by slashing spending across the board uh well nearly across the board we'll yeah. that in a minute. but uh they've cut 43 million dollars from their total expenses over the last year and th- that's down 
actually 177 million from 2018. So their revenue fell 130 million, but their spending dropped 177 million. So they actually right. came out uh, in the black and had a significant cushion there, uh, about $30 million, uh, right. where, where they could have lost even more revenue or could still lose more revenue and not be in immediate financial distress from it. So I don't know, they still have room to shrink, I guess, is the, <laughs> is the takeaway there. Sure. I don't know, that's a it's not necessarily a very positive takeaway, but uh, that, that is a takeaway. Sure. Um, and, you know, it, it is kind of troubling, though, despite the cushion, the fact that they're slashing spending, which is usually on programs, the thing that's, that members enjoy mm -hmm. from the pro, from the organization. Uh, but their membership dues are declining. You, you report here that just in 2021 alone, they lost 22 million in membership dues. Um, so if you're not spending on the things that members care about and you're already seeing a decline in membership revenue, does that mm -hmm. exacerbate going forward? Because members say, well, there's less and less benefits for me. Maybe I'm going to stop contributing. Um, so it could yeah. spell problems for them in the future, for sure. Yeah. That, and that number's down 73 million since 2018. So right. they've had a humongous drop uh, in that time period in, in just three years in membership dues, which is a huge driver of their revenue um, in addition to contributions. But yeah, I mean, we, we spoke to Brian Mittendorf, who's an accountant, uh, accounting professor at Ohio State University, who's followed the NRA's finances for a number of years. And yeah, that's exactly what he noted, that this, this could turn into a death spiral, because if you're cutting services for members, then it's likely, or at least possible, that members will no longer continue to pay you to be members, right? The right. sort of basic concept, but... But that's what you're seeing. It seems to be some pretty good evidence that we we have here in, in this report. And then a, another one we'll talk about in a minute that the membership is no longer as engaged as they were. And it like it's very significant, the drop off that there's been. Um, but one area there hasn't been a drop off, right, <laughs> uh, is in legal spending and a specific kind of legal spending. Right. This isn't the spending on cases like the one before the Supreme Court, although the NRA is funding that one, to be clear. Um, so they are still doing, it's not as though they aren't doing anything uh, in, inside of their mission, uh, just, just to be crystal clear on that point. Uh, but their spending on administrative legal fees is now up to $48 million in 2021. Yeah. That's an increase of $6 million, uh, I think about $6 million from the previous year. And it's now their top single line item budget and sorry their top single line item expense in their entire budget is administrative legal fees legal tax and audit fees um and that is incredible i mean you know they're spending more on their lawyers to defend them in in the new york ag case and some of the other uh legal fights they've gotten into like the one with their um, former top contractor, Ackerman McQueen, then they're spending on anything else they do. Right. And that speaks to, again, the point where if all your expenses are going just to covering your rear end in court cases, you know, start to look a little less appealing to prospective members, perhaps. And that becomes a problem. I think you'll have a, you have a member's piece about this. That becomes a problem mm -hmm. when big political fights come up where members yep. usually turn to the NRA to be the most active and spend the most. Um, you have a, a, a great point in here about their school shield program. If you want to highlight the, the, yeah. <laughs> what they're putting out in that, cause this, obviously that's very topical right now. We just had a yeah. terrible school shooting and that's their flagship program to deal with school shootings and right. not really spending a lot on it. Um, and that's the program that, <clears throat> so that's the program that Wayne touted during the leadership forum at, at the annual meeting as their answer for school shootings that they want to. Uh, effectively, it's a program that helps harden schools, helps train schools in how to make their facilities harder for somebody to attack. Um, you know, they also uh, advocate for putting armed guards who are, you know, not teachers necessarily, but but uh, usually the NRA is, is advocating for, you know, trained, um, trained armed guards like police or, or former military people. Uh, but anyway, um, 
that's the, I mean, that was this is the program they put up as their main answer for what to do about something like the Uvalde shooting. Right. And according to the document we published earlier this year, this internal document that gives and that document gives a little bit more specific insight into their individual programs, whereas the annual report just gives a more broad yeah. overview of what they're doing. Um, but that document showed they'd spent exactly they'd spent thirteen thousand nine hundred dollars for the first eight months of 2021 on their school shield program. Right. I mean, that that's, I, it's not clear what even, that would even amount to. You obviously can't pay a staff person, even a single staff person, $13,000 in, in eight months. It's, so I don't know what their, what that money went towards, but obviously this, this is not a program that is anywhere near a priority for the NRA. Uh, and it's just one of many that's seen really cut to the uh, cuts that take it all the way down to the bone. Right. There's just nothing left there. Uh, Maybe they've ramped up the spending on it since then. We don't know, of course, uh, at this point, but you know, that was last year. So um, it it obviously raises a lot of questions about what they're doing with their money. Um, They're spending $48 million a year on administrative legal fees $13,000 $13,000 on school safety programs. Right. And, yep. And it speaks to maybe, you know, uh, a little bit of, if, like we said before, if there's not putting out those things that members care about or that people see use in, you could see a declining enthusiasm for the group. And you saw maybe a little bit of evidence for that in another piece you wrote about just overall attendance at this year's NRA, NRA annual meeting. Um, right. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, <clears throat> and uh, all right, well, let's start off with the numbers and then I'll, I'll give you a little bit of uh, a caveat here. Uh, so the 2020 conference that just happened in Houston, that saw, according to the NRA, they announced to set their board meeting uh, the Monday after the conference ended. Uh, there were 61,254 people who attended. Uh, now, that sounds like a lot, and it is. It's still a lot. Look. Like no other gun group could put together a conference like the NRA annual meeting. It's just not realistic to think that. But that's the lowest attendance they've seen in 16 years for an NRA annual meeting. It's lower even than the 2004 conference in Pittsburgh. So uh, that's even if you go by that number that they gave out, which the caveat there is that it didn't at all feel as though there were 61,000 people who attended, even over the course of that uh, entire, you know, four day event. You know, I was there, I was in the conference uh, hall, I went to the leadership forum where, where Donald Trump spoke. It was very empty the entire time. I've never seen an annual meeting that empty uh, ever. And 61,000 sounds like a lot more people than actually showed up. Frankly. Yeah. Uh, just, and to be fair, the protesters didn't seem that much uh, bigger than any other protests I've been to at the NRA annual meetings. So, uh, you know, I don't know that it's, I don't know that there's been a great outpouring of enthusiasm in, uh, on the other side of the issue either, but the NRA certainly that event was very empty and even compared to something like shot show the industry trade show that that we cover as well that i was at in las vegas uh earlier this year which did see you know a drop in attendance it still felt a lot better attended than this annual meeting and covid was much more of a concern back during that show as well right it was in the middle of the omicron wave so the fact that Mm -hmm. people still showed up to that yeah and especially obviously this was in the wake of both the Ubaldi shooting and a few weeks after the Buffalo shooting. So you'd expect, you know, typically we see uh, a resurgence in gun politics coming to the forefront after these horrific mass shootings. Um, so a massive decline, a 16 year low in attendance is not something you'd expect in the wake of a, of an impending political fight. You'd expect you right. know, the people that are really into pro gun politics to kind of rally. Um, but you saw it not in just, just in attendance, but you report also that, uh, during the board meeting, participation in that board meeting was also down. I mean, that's been spotty for a few meetings, right? But it, it's well, still... uh, it was participation in the elections, the board the elections, elections which, the election. which don't require people to show up. 
Uh, although there is a component that, and I'll, I'll touch on that in a minute, but <clears throat> the election turnout, which is the NRA does their elections by mail ballot, right? So you don't have to go to the NRA annual meeting to, to vote in the board elections. Um, but this, this year, 2022, saw the lowest number, the fewest ballots returned to the NRA and a board election since, again, 2006, at least. Um, <clears throat> we, we actually have uh, access to a, 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 nearly all of the reports on the uh, NRA elections over the last you know, dozen plus years. Uh, well, I guess 16 years in this case. Uh, and and uh, yeah, none of them had as few ballots returned as this year until you get back to 2006. And back in 2006, they were sending a million fewer ballots out too. Right. So the percentage participating in these elections just is minuscule now. Right. Yeah. And um, another development that you didn't touch on it in this piece, but it, it follows up on something we reported previously. It was also Wayne LaPierre was reelected handily uh, to be executive yeah. vice president. Um, I think Alan West, who we reported was challenging Wayne. I think he only got one vote. Uh, That's right. And so you see the grip. Although I will say that seven people abstained. Abstained, from, yeah. They just didn't vote. Uh, of the board members, there were 61 board members there of the 76 that the NRA has, which, you know, again, like a lot of these board members don't even show up right. to to participate in, in running the organization. So, you know, uh, it's not that perhaps surprising that nobody really treats this thing very seriously, the internal governance, because the same guy's been running the place for 30 years. Right. Um, how much, how much do... Uh, how confident are NRA members that their votes and their voice are really heard inside of that organization? I don't know. I mean, looking at the participation, clearly not many of them feel that way. Right. I mean, and then, so the, there's a, there's a weird complication with the NRA and how, how it runs. There's 76 board members, as I just mentioned, right? 75 of those are elected on the ballot. It's a third of them every year, but 75 are, are elected by ballot by voting members uh, is what they're, you know, the term for them. And that's about two and a half million people, according to, um, you know, th this latest uh, election report. They sent out about 2.56 million ballots. So that's how many people can, are, uh, how, that's how many of the NRA members are actually uh, eligible to vote in an NRA election right now. Uh, now, that might sound weird, right, because the NRA has over four and a half million members, somewhere below five million, uh, according to the internal documents we referenced earlier. But uh, so how why can't the other two million vote in that way? Well, um, you have to be either a lifetime member or a member for five consecutive years before you can vote in, in those board elections through the ballot. So New York has a. My understanding is that New York has a regulation that says membership organizations need to um, have the ability for all of their members to have a voice in their internal governance. So the way the NRA complies with that is to have a 76th board member, which is elected by members at the annual meeting, right? Uh, hopefully this makes sense to people uh, following, but so that other 2 million members uh, or so, the only way they, they only have one person representing all of them on the NRA board for one. And the only way they can actually participate in their election is by attending the annual meeting, which uh, usually sees around 80,000 or more people. Uh, this year obviously was much lower, but, uh, but even so 61,000 people attended this year uh, and only, 550 or 544, I believe. Yeah, 544. Yeah, 544 actually cast a ballot in that 76th board member election. So, you know, that those 544 people get to decide the, the one board member that's representing like 2 million <laughs> of the NRA's uh, members. So, you know, it's just 
further evidence of how disengaged the membership has become at this point. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, you're seeing declining attendance, declining participation in the elections. And as you said, why almost why would they if, you know, the same guy's been running things. He, of course, got reelected again handily. Um, yeah. It just sort of speaks uh, to an overall trend. So we'll have to. It does. I mean, this is these are institutional issues that go beyond the immediate problems of the corruption allegations yeah. uh, and perhaps explain why those sorts of activities were allowed to happen in the first place, because there's just not uh, a lot of governance and not a lot of oversight by the members of this membership organization. And to be fair to the members, it's very difficult to provide that oversight given the way that the organization is structured. So sure. anyway, um, you know, I wrote a whole piece on why this is such a big problem as you referenced earlier uh, for gun rights advocates right now, because the NRA is weaker than it's been in a very long time. And now it's facing the most significant fight at both the state and federal level in a very long time. So that's not a great combination if you're a gun rights advocate. And and it's probably worse than you think, because I think a lot of people who um, are aware of these issues and are not happy about them have kind of moved on from the NRA. And the problem with that is the NRA is still, even with all this, is still an extremely important organization for gun rights in America. It's not the only reason that gun laws, uh, stricter gun laws don't pass, but it is a, it's still a significant player. And I think people ignore that or underestimate that at, at their own uh, peril uh, when it comes to advocating for gun rights at the very least. So uh, people should check that piece out if they want. But in order to do that, what do they have to do, Jake? Yeah, in order to do that, you got to become a member. Um, you got plenty of membership options. Um, we can't we can't do this without you. We can't do the podcast. We can't do the journalism without you. We're entirely reader funded. Um, so if you want to support us, go head on over to thereload.com. You can get monthly, yearly, or even lifetime memberships to support our journalism. And in return, you get this podcast a day early. You get a chance to appear on the podcast if you just reply to your member's newsletter every Sunday. Uh, we'd yeah. love to have another member segment on here. Those are always great for us. Um, yeah, and you get and that's, hundreds you know, of pieces. Help uh, help us out. Help Jake fill that empty spot behind him on the wall. Yeah. If you're watching on YouTube, you'll see there's, a, there's one more guitar that you right. see up there. So <laughs> help uh, help uh, help buy a membership so I can give him a, a raise and he can put he can uh, put it into a new guitar. <laughs> Maybe I'll put a rifle like uh, you will match. We'll put a rifle. Yes, right there, there next you to go. The guitar. <laughs> That's right. Um, I get I get people comment on the the guitars they like them. So yeah, yeah. We'll have uh, you know. Hopefully we can get you another one soon. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for this episode. We appreciate you guys uh, tuning in. We'll be back next week.